Well, good morning. It's been just a beautiful morning already. I, just, I feel so grateful, I think, just as we praise Jesus together. I just felt so much gratitude for the wonder of who God is. It's an amazing gift that we have a God who is so powerful and so mighty and who loves us so passionately. It's just a, it's awe-inspiring and amazing. And today I want to talk a bit about the idea of wisdom. Have you ever had really good conversations with people who are just so wise? Whenever I find that I talk to people with a lot of wisdom, they just reframe my perspective, my view on things, my conversation, my approach to all kinds of different aspects and facets of life. I think it's, it's a really good gift. This happens to me all the time with our staff. For example, we can be wrestling through a problem and trying to sort things out and figure them out, and Caleb will just come up with some kind of comment like, well, what do you think Jesus would think about that? Thank you, Caleb, for being spiritual and wise and great. It just re- it reframes the conversation. Or maybe I'm struggling to know, how do I express something clearly and well? And Ashley will just say, oh, it's easy. You just do it like this. Or I'm trying to frame a meeting and a conversation around a particular topic and I'm wrestling through a bit of the dynamics of that. And Rod will say something like, oh, yeah, that's easy. You just put these things together in this way, and it's an easy, smooth conversation. Or Jen will pop in with just exactly the right question at exactly the right time to spark a whole different level of thought and depth in our conversations. And again, this happens to me with all of our staff. They just have a unique kind of wisdom, and I'm so grateful for them. And as we have these conversations, it reminds me of the beauty of the wisdom of Jesus, that Jesus just always knows what to do, that he always has a clear and an accurate perspective, that Jesus is never uncertain but what the right way is to move forward or how we can best navigate life in all of its fullness and complexity. And I think this is really good news for me and for you today because we recognize that we are in a very complex time. We're in the midst of a time with so much uncertainty and so much strain and tension and polarization and and so many different kinds of perspectives and challenges that are just so obviously beyond us. And we just need someone else. And I think we recognize that for so many of us, we feel the push and the inertia, the rush that change is happening in our lives faster than change has ever happened in our lives before. And some of us just feel exhausted by that. And then we recognize the somewhat unnerving fact that this, this current moment is the slowest pace of change that you and I will ever experience for the rest of our lives. It will just continue to increase rapidly and at a faster and faster rate. And it brings us to this fact that we just need the wisdom and the unique guidance of God, that we're invited into this beautiful truth, that we don't have to be able to sort it all out for ourselves, because Jesus knows what to do. We're in this series walking through the Gospel of Mark called Remarkable and just delighting in the wonder of who Jesus is and the goodness of what he brings to us. And today we're going to look at Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13 uh, through to verse 27. So if you want to pull that out on your app or Bible app or Bible, feel free to do so. It'll also be up on the screen and I'll read it for you. And this passage for some of us is pretty familiar. But what I'm asking the Holy Spirit of God to do for us today is to give us a fresh perspective of Jesus, to give us a renewed delight in the wisdom and the power of God. I'm asking that we could maybe see Jesus differently than maybe we've ever seen him before, and that his presence would become more real and more attractive to us than we have maybe to this point in time, and that he would teach us how to access the beautiful wisdom that he has for us today. So I'm excited about the opportunity we have to dive into this passage together. So this passage begins with a massive and emotional question. In Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, we read, Later they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and asked, 
Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay it or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Let's just pause right there for a minute because this is a fascinating encounter. And it's really difficult for us to appreciate and fully understand the weight of what is going on in this particular moment. So imagine with me for a minute what this would feel like if you were in the original audience. Again, a foreign army, the Roman army has come in, they've marched through, they've taken over your country. You live every single day seeing the abuse of their power all around you. They're enslaving people and doing all kinds of horrendous things. You know the oppression of this government all of the time. And just to pour a little bit of salt on the wound, the Roman occupiers say to me and they say to you, you are going to pay us to be here and to oppress you. You will fund all of this with an incredible imperial tax so that we can continue to oppress you and we will have armies that will be able to move on and oppress someone else as well. You can imagine the resentment that there would be towards the imperial tax. You are already oppressed by these people and now they're saying you must pay us to oppress you. And if you don't have the money, they'll take all of your possessions. If you decide not to pay, they'll take your children and sell them off as property to someone else to do whatever they decide to do with them, and you may never see them again. This is the weight of this question. You can imagine the height and the intensity of all of this. And so Jesus asks for a denarius, a coin, a common coin, a Roman coin that was being used. And you'll see a picture of it here. Uh, and so this is about what the denarius would have looked like at the time of Jesus. Uh, it's got a picture of Tiberius, and the inscription says, uh, Tiberius, son of, Ag son of the divine Augustus. And there's this picture of sort of Rome deified, uh, seated on a throne with a radiance of light uh, pouring out of her. And the Jewish people would have recognized in this coin and in all of the other Roman coins a claim to divinity that was blasphemous. They know there is only one real and true God. And so whenever they're forced to handle this money and to pay the Roman tax, they're, they're feeling this pressure. Are they caving in to the idolatry of the nation that has oppressed them? And so they hated this tax. They resisted this tax. They were so torn about what to do with this thing. And so when these guys come to Jesus, they've probably been prepping this question for a long time. And so as soon as they asked him this question, should we pay this tax or should we not, the whole room or wherever they were would have gone totally quiet and still. Because the tension in that room would have made all that we experienced in the polarization of COVID look like nothing in comparison to what they're asking Jesus in that moment. They're saying to Jesus, should we pay or shouldn't we? If Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay the Roman tax, they'll hand him over to the Roman authorities as a traitor. They will take him off and they will kill him. And if Jesus says, yes, you should pay this tax, all the people around him will feel like he cares nothing for all of the oppression that they go through every single day, all the violence that they experience, all of the ways that they're idolatrously claiming that Caesar is God. And so Jesus finds himself in this moment caught between these two realities. There's absolutely no way to win. This is a moment that requires tremendous and divine wisdom. And I love Jesus' response. Because in one single sentence, 
Jesus unravels this entire conversation and creates an entirely different view of reality. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. This is remarkable wisdom. To diffuse the tension of that room and that situation and all of the oppression and all of the idolatry and all of the weight of the civil government and all the responsibility to God, to handle all of that in one single sentence is tremendous wisdom. Jesus both affirms the reality and the fact of the civic authority and the place that they have been given at this particular point in time, and he pushes back hard and fast against any and every claim that would come up against God, that he is the one, the only, and the true God. Give back to Caesar what belongs to him. It's his money anyway. Hand it over. But be faithful to give to God every single thing that God is worthy of. It's amazing wisdom. And we're reminded through this passage that there is no situation that we have ever faced, currently face, or ever could face that would be beyond the unique and the delightful wisdom of Jesus. Jesus just always knows what to do. He always understands what to say. He has a wisdom that is so far greater and more glorious and beyond the wonder of anything that we can possibly imagine. He could reframe any situation, any conversation, any tension, any hardship perfectly and wonderfully in an instant, in a single sentence. He can produce a different view and perspective. And again, for us today, this is just such good news because we recognize that we are in times that are so tremendously complicated. We're in times where it is so challenging to know what to do. How do we navigate the the reality of trying to raise holy and healthy kids in the midst of this current culture? When do we speak and when do we stay silent? How do we navigate all the moral quandaries that may take place at work? How do we handle the pressures that we feel at school? How do we navigate the reality of tension that may exist in the context of someone's family or in their marriage? How do we navigate all of the complex things that we have and that we're faced with in every single moment that are so much bigger and greater and seemingly stronger than we are? The truth is that Jesus always knows what to do. He always knows what to say. He is the essence of perfect and divine wisdom in his very being. And when you and I come up against hard and difficult and painful and complex situations, most of the time we are tempted to give in to fear or to anger or anxiety or frustration or tension, and these present themselves to us so freely and so easily. But Jesus is pointing out to us that there is perhaps a different way to approach this with him. He has all of the wisdom that we need. Why don't we just ask him? I find it funny how often when I'm wrestling through something hard or feeling a sense of anxiety or pressure or stress, and usually my wife will say to me, well, have you prayed about the situation? And it's ridiculous how often I have to say, no, I I actually haven't. It hasn't crossed my mind. I've been worried and anxious for days about this, but for some reason, it didn't cross my mind to just pray and to pursue Jesus. One of my theme verses over the course of the last number of years has come from Psalm chapter 37. And in Psalm 37, the whole world is falling apart. And David writes these beautiful words, Do not fret. It leads only to evil. And because when we come up against complexity and hardship and intensity and difficulty, we have one of two choices. 
We can go into the presence of Jesus who knows absolutely everything and seek the wonder of his wisdom, or we can become anxious and fretty and try and, in our own strength and in our own power, try and find a way to solve or fix the particular situation. So I find that a really good question for this is how much time am I spending praying about the situation and how much time am I spending fretting and anxious about the situation trying to solve it myself? And can I ask you, in this current moment, the things in your life that are causing you stress and anxiety and frustration and tension, what is the percentage of time that you have spent praying about these things and seeking the face of Jesus on them And what's the percentage of time that you have spent anxious and annoyed and fretting and trying to find a solution in your own wisdom and capacity and strength? Because I think the answer to this question tells us how much we really trust Jesus, how much we really believe that He is the one that holds all wisdom and insight and understanding. Because if I really believe that Jesus knows what to do in any and every situation, my immediate response should be, I will go to Jesus and ask Him because He knows what to do. And he delights in guiding me in the way that is right and true. And so I want to propose something for us as a church family together. What if today and tomorrow and in all of the days to come, whenever we found ourselves fretting, whenever we found ourselves anxious and frustrated and tense and unsure and rolling through all kinds of scenarios, like fretfully trying to find a solution to these things, what if every time we found ourselves in that space, we turned it around and turned it into a prayer? What if we just stilled our hearts and minds in the presence of the one glorious Lord that we have sung about today and said, Jesus, you know what to do. Jesus, would you show me what to do? Would you give me the wisdom that I need that is so much beyond myself? Jesus, what do you want to do with this situation? And what if every time we found ourselves fretting and anxious and concerned and trying to work up a solution in our own strength, instead we just said, Jesus, what do you want to do? Jesus, I know that you have the right wisdom. Show me what to do. And what if we did this together? Again, as you know, 21st century North American people, we are remarkably individualistic. And it leads us to a tremendous amount of anxiety because we all feel the pressure to be able to solve all of the world all the time for ourselves. But Jesus has given us this really good gift of the church. He's given us this beautiful gift of one another. And what if we invited the people around us into our conversations and into our questions? What if we sought the wisdom of God that he has given to them? And what if we invited people to pray with us, to seek the face of Jesus with us, to discern together, what are we supposed to do, Jesus? What do you want to do with this particular moment? Can you imagine the gift of how that would be? The confidence of knowing that we do all of these things in a beautiful community that Jesus has designed. What if we could seek him together so that we're not just hearing our own voices, but through one another we can hear the voice of Jesus guiding and directing us, leading us into the fullness of his truth. And so today, do you really believe, are you utterly convinced to the core of your being that Jesus knows what to do, that his wisdom is perfect, that it's profound, and he invites us every single day and every concern that we face to just ask him for the things that we need? The scripture reminds us that God will give generously to every one of us who asks him for the wisdom that we need. 
And what if we did this together? Then our passage moves on to the second question, which is an interesting question about what happens sort of after we die. <clears throat> the passage picks up in verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? And now when you read this question, I just kind of think like, oh my goodness. It's like one of those questions that just feels like it's kind of agonizing and pointless and somewhat empty. But what's going on in this passage is the Sadducees, again, as the passage says, are a group of people who do not believe in the resurrection. They don't believe that there's any life after death. And so what they're trying to say to Jesus is, Jesus, Moses said, this is what we're supposed to do in this situation. And so if we follow Moses' advice, and something like this happened with seven different brothers, in the afterlife, it would create absolute chaos. And so it's not really possible that there could be an afterlife, because if we follow the law of Moses, it will create chaos throughout eternity. And I love Jesus, again, because he's so remarkably wise. And the way that Jesus responds to this question has just a beautiful kind of wisdom to it. Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken." And again, Jesus is so brilliant. I think there's something kind of comical about this passage because could you imagine going to Jesus who sees the beginning from the end and knows what all of eternity will look like and saying to him, Jesus, I think I know what eternity will be like significantly better than you. And so this is what I think it's going to be like and here is my problem. It, it just seems kind of funny. But Jesus kind of pulls back the curtain just a tiny bit. He knows what the fullness of life in eternity will be like. And Jesus says to him, you're just mistaken. You just radically misunderstand all of what eternity will be like. And then in classic Jesus fashion, he just cuts right to the central issue, to the main point of what's going on in this conversation. And Jesus says to them, you are badly mistaken because you have no idea what's in the scriptures or what the power of God really looks like. You think that life will end here, but there's so much more. What Jesus is saying to them, he pulls out this beautiful passage where God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush as the great I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the people of Israel throughout their history have defined themselves as being the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as a way of saying God protected and he provided for our ancestors. God continues to protect and provide for us. We are the unique people of God. And Jesus pulls out this passage that they knew so well, and he's saying to them, in effect, if God only protected and provided for these people for this life only, it would be such an inadequate provision. But God has a more beautiful, a more wonderful plan than you can possibly imagine. He is a God who will take all of his people and protect them and provide for them forever and ever and ever. He will overcome the power of death and create a whole new sense of life. You're badly mistaken.
Again, Jesus just knows what to do. He just knows what to say. His wisdom is beautiful and life-giving and complete. He sees the beginning from the end. He knows everything exactly as it will be and as it ought to be. But I find this passage right in the middle where Jesus says, are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God, really strikes me in an interesting way. Because it reminds me that if we did know the Scriptures and if we did understand the power of God, there would be an element of wisdom in those things. We would not be in error if we really lived in an abundance of these things. And when Jesus is saying to us, know the Scriptures and the power of God, He's not just saying know them intellectually. He's not saying that you know what the Bible is and what it says on, an, on just an intellectual level. It's this idea of a deep sort of knowing, a rich kind of understanding. Jesus is saying to them and to us, if you understood the Scripture in a way that saturated your soul, if you understood the Scripture in a way that it went through your mind and into your heart and flowed out of your hands and your feet and your mouth, if you understood the Scripture in such a way that you couldn't see any part of the world except through the lens of the beauty and the truth of Scripture, it would radically change you. And can you imagine what that would be like in every circumstance and in every situation that we face to see all of these things through the wonderful truth of the Scripture? in a way where there is clarity on what is right and what is wrong and what we should do and what we should not do and how we should think about one another and how we should interact, if we could just live out the truth of the Scripture in this deeply embodied way, it would change everything. But in order to know the Scripture, we have to spend time in it. We need space every single day to allow the truth of the Scripture to reform and to renew and to saturate our minds and our hearts because we live every day in the midst of a culture that will tell us so many other things, that will present an alternative reality of what the truth really is. And we need daily this time to have our minds and our souls renewed so we can understand what is real and what is true. And Jesus invites us into this beautiful gift and so often we see the Bible as sort of this book that's there that's important to read and maybe a duty and a responsibility, but you know how good this is? That every single day you and I have the opportunity to come into the presence of God to read the truth of His Word that is strong and clear and forthright to us. Every single day we can glean more of the wonder and the majesty, the goodness of what His character is like and the wisdom of how He wants to guide and direct our lives. This is such a wonderful gift. And what if we internalized it into the core of our soul so that it shaped all of our thoughts and our motives and our attitudes and our behavior? What if we approached the Scripture not with an attitude of what's the bare minimum that I can do and still be following God? What if we approached the Scripture with an attitude of how fully can I immerse myself in this? How far can I possibly go to obey God in absolutely everything because His words are life and they are truth? What if we consumed the Scripture like our lives and our souls depended on it? In this last week, I heard an interesting story of a woman who was, had just come to faith and who took time off work and holiday time because she just wanted to read the Scripture. She'd never read it before, but she said, this is the most important thing. I'm going to take the holiday time that is very precious to me and book days off because I just want to read the fullness of the Scripture. When was the last time we felt passionate about the Word of God like this? How much do we long to just let it seep through every part of our being and pour out through our lives and our words and our actions? 
Again, maybe we need to memorize particular passages that connect to things we're struggling with or truth about the reality of who God is. Maybe we just need more of a deep understanding of the truth of these, these particular things. But let's not embrace the Scripture as just a duty or a responsibility. Let's welcome it into our lives as the very Word of God, as a light to our souls, as a lamp to our feet, as something that will transform us and bring life to us and to all of those around us. Let's welcome this as the good gift that it is. And what about the power of God? Are you convinced about the power of God? Do we know that his power is beautiful and life-giving and perfect and supreme, that he reigns and rules over all of creation and all of the universe now and forever, that he gives us this beautiful gift to delight and to praise him in the here and now and things like we did this morning, because one day we will do it forever and ever. And even in this moment, heaven is consumed with delighting and praising the glory and the power of his name. But I find that my fears show me where the boundaries of my faith are. I find that when I'm afraid, I'm saying to myself and often saying to God that I think that this situation is too big for him, or that maybe he doesn't love me enough to step into the middle of this situation with me, or maybe he's not wise enough this time to show me what to do. And so what do your fears tell you about the boundaries of your faith in God? What do your fears tell you about, about what you really know and believe at the core of your soul about the power of who he is? Do you really believe in the wonder and the might of his power that can deal with anything and everything that we face? And this is a question that the people of God have wrestled with day in and day out through all of their history. The people of God in ancient Israel had to ask themselves the question, do we really believe that God can part the waters for us and hold them up long enough for all of us to pass through? When we gave our lives to Jesus, we asked this question, do I really believe that the power of God is enough, the sacrifice of Jesus is enough to wash me from all of my sin and to save my soul for all of eternity? Do I believe that his power is enough? And every day we face the question, do we believe that his power is enough to strengthen and to guide us for all that we face in our marriages and our families and our home and our work and our schools and our recreation and everywhere that we are? Do we believe that the power of God is enough to strengthen us for whatever we may face today and tomorrow and in all of the days to come? Do we believe that his power is enough when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and through moments of pain and hardship and difficulty that he can preserve us through our darkest moments? And that his power is enough in other situations to stretch out his hand to heal and to miraculously change all things? And do we believe that his power is enough that one day he will take this broken and shattered world and wrap it and recreate something beautiful and wonderful that will last forever? Are we convinced that this is with the nature and the character of his power? And if you're wrestling to really believe that his power is enough, maybe you need to spend some time reading some of the great stories of the scripture to describe the beauty and the wonder and the power of God. Maybe you need to put together a really good playlist that is nothing but songs that describe the might and the glory and the strength of God. And maybe a really critical step for us as a community is that maybe we should ask one another, where have you seen the power of God most profoundly in your life? And as we share these stories, it brings the truth that we know from Scripture and the things that we sing about, sing about, and it makes it real and tangible to our lives. As we hear these truths from one another, and even as we share our own stories with one another, it makes them real all over again. 
And maybe we just need a really good, healthy dose of clarification on what the power of God is really like. Because we don't want to be in error because we don't understand the Scripture or the power of God. And so, so today, where do you need the wisdom of Jesus? Where are you wrestling with things that are just too big or too hard or too strong or too overwhelming for you? Again, Jesus knows what to do. His wisdom is perfect in any and in every situation. And he invites us into this beautiful gift of navigating these tools that he's given to us that every moment we can go and we can simply ask him. We can pray for the wisdom, for the insight that we need. We can ask Jesus for clarity on what it is that we are supposed to do. We can do this in the context of life-giving relationships where we embrace one another and the wisdom that God has given to us and where we intercede for one another. We can do this through the Scripture. And we can do this most healthily as we understand the power of God. And so I want us to just take a couple minutes and just talk to Jesus about where do you need his wisdom? What are the spaces that are causing you anxiety or fear? What are the spaces where you're wrestling so hard in your own strength to try and make things happen in the way that you would like them to be? So just take a minute and ask, talk to Jesus about where it is that you need his wisdom. And then just take a minute, and I want you to ask him, where does Jesus want to meet you with that wisdom? Again, the Holy Spirit tends to be very, very specific with us. And maybe Jesus will bring to mind a particular book of the Bible that he wants you to spend some time in reading or processing or a way of engaging with the Scripture. Maybe he will remind you that you just need to ask him and continuously ask him and keep on asking him for the wisdom that you need. Maybe he'll point out to you some relationships that he's asking you to build or to invest in to experience his wisdom. Or maybe he'll tell you it's just time to come to a fresh understanding of what the power of God really looks like. So just ask him where he wants to meet with you. How does he want to meet you with the unique wisdom that he has?